Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. Our gospel reading today is from Matthew chapter 6. Pray then like this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into to temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Prayer is a time to connect to the heart of God. God knows our needs before we ask, but we are still encouraged to ask. Conversation with God is to change our hearts rather than try to change God's mind. We can learn a lot by looking at the way that Jesus prayed. He taught us to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I have a very active household. It is a very active place. Amy and I have three wonderful girls, one in high school, one in middle school, and one in elementary school. Daily, we fly into our house and fly out of it in any given moment. Bags are jettisoned like cargo from a plane flying over as we scoop up another load of cargo to head to a practice, a rehearsal, or something else. The dining room table gets filled and filled with work to be done, schoolwork to be looked over, papers that need to be signed and returned home or to school. Our house is active and busy. On top of that, we have three wonderful dogs, two golden retrievers and a lab. There's always movement at our house. We have a wonderful little house. It's an open floor plan. In our house, the dining room, the kitchen, and the family room can all be seen from each other. And we bought that on purpose. We love to be together as family. We love to see what each other are doing, and we love to be part of life with one another. In the middle of our very busy house, in the middle of our family room that's in the middle of our open floor plan, is a very special piece of furniture. Now, it's not an antique that you would talk about with too many people. It's not really a pretty piece of furniture. It's special for two reasons. The first is it's my chair. It's dad's chair which is often the fight at our house. It's very comfortable. It's a big overstuffed recliner. And the thing that also makes it special is the memories that have been made there in that chair. In that chair, we have rocked babies to sleep. In that chair, we have fed bottles. In that chair, I learned that as a dad, I could stay up for long periods at night, sometimes sleeping, sitting straight up while holding a sick baby. And in that chair, we've read books together. 
and we've watched a lot of sports. Football is the sport that I love to watch the most. I'm a big college football fan. We've watched a lot of sports, cheered for my favorite team along the way. Most of the time, we get real excited in dad's chairs because we're cheering against one of those teams from south of the Red River. My wife loves to remind me of a story where Molly Ann, our youngest, was a very small baby. She was asleep in my arms as I watched the Red River rivalry. Part of my job in watching that game is to make sure the referees stay honest. <laughs> I communicate clearly with them along the way. A play happened that excited me. I let the refs know about it, and that tiny baby let everything out. Legs and arms shot in different directions. Her whole body seized up. She took a big breath right in the middle of her slumber, and then after what seemed like a very long pause, she let the scream out. My wife came around the corner to find out what was happening and realize what I had done. She doesn't let me live that down. It's just one of the many memories that takes place in that chair. So many times in the mornings as I walk by, get ready for work, I'll see a daughter under a blanket with her favorite cartoon turned on, having a difficult time waking up, getting ready for their own school day. We argue back and forth who should get to sit there, what shows should get to watch. It's the center of our family in so many ways. I thought about that chair and how many times my daughters have come to that chair for rest, for comfort, to be consoled, simply to find peace. And I've also thought about how many times when my daughters have come, come to that chair, that my heart was happy to see them. Much as our, fa our faith. When we go to God, we find comfort, we find rest, we find peace and care. And when we go to God, the Psalms tell us over and over again, it delights the heart of God. It's with this thought that I want to continue our sermon series, The Prayer He Taught Us. We are looking at the importance of prayer in our life of faith, and specifically, we are looking at the Lord's Prayer. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look line by line of this wonderful prayer that we say so often. We want to explore the depth of its meaning and what it has to say for us, the disciples today. Prayer, as Pastor Dave Poteet reminded us last week, is so important. It is truly a gift from God that we could connect with God, share our heart, share our joy and our pain, our worries and our hopes, knowing that God cares for us and listens. Prayer lets God listen. Prayer gives us the opportunity to listen to God. Prayer as James says, is powerful and effective. Prayer is a unique gift and practice in our life of faith. It is essential to who we are. Christian people are called to pray. Christian people are called to pray because, of, as St. John of Damascus says, prayer is the rising of one's mind and heart to God. The things of this world draw our attention quickly. It pulls our eyes away from the Creator, 
and we focus so heavily on what's going on around us. But when we pray, it lifts us above the moment for me. God goes on to say, you will make no image from something in the sky or on the ground or deep in the waters and worship that image. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and you shall worship no other. And finally, God will say, you shall not take my name in vain. It's not a new teaching to know that we're called to keep God's name sacred, to lift God's name up in our prayers, in our life of faith, to not misuse it in life on a daily basis. It's a little more than that, though. Hallowing God's name is not simply treating it well, but sharing it with the world. Matthew chooses to end his gospel with a very familiar verse. In this, at the end of the gospel of Matthew, he says, Go into all the world, make disciples in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We're not only to keep God's name sacred, but that sacred name is to be shared with the world. For the love that it invokes in us, we should share with others. We are a people called to hallowed God's name. When I was a youth director right out of college, I came across a wonderful little book. I found it on the shelf in a bookstore in Altus, Oklahoma. It was just out the door from my office, and I used to wander over to this bookstore, and there I'd look at the shelves and find books that would challenge me, books that would help me to teach my youth, all kinds of wonderful books. There I found the book, Seeking the Face of God by Gary Thomas. I've read several of his books since then. He's written over 17 books and sold millions upon millions of copies. Of late, he really writes mostly on the topic of marriage. But early on, right out of seminary, he wrote about spirituality, about connecting with God in ways like prayer. And in this book, Seeking the Face of God, he speaks about how prayer has been developed over time. He quoted from wonderful people like St. John of Damascus, John Wesley, and many other people. I loved this book. It was one of the first books I really wrestled with in my faith. He, in this book, tells a wonderful story. His early ministry was not in the pastoral ministry or in youth ministry like I started out in. His early ministry was helping others write. He's a very gifted, a very talented writer. So right out of seminary, he began to work in a ministry where he would help people communicate their stories. He would meet with them and he would write for them or help them to write. He was working with Franklin Graham and many of the people from Samaritan's Purse, helping to write a story. He didn't say much about his time with Franklin Graham except for this one moment where across the room he could hear Franklin Graham speaking with one of his associates. And he simply said the phrase, maybe what we should do is take Gary with us on the plane. We could have dinner with daddy and mom and then fly back and we could work together on the plane. Well, that's all Gary had to hear. He was about to be invited to dinner with the Reverend Billy Graham. Right out of seminary, beginning his ministry, who wouldn't be excited to meet such a wonderful man? A person who has preached, 
who has taught all around the world, who has met with political leaders and presidents, who's really done so much for the faith. He was excited about it, and he was ready to say yes. Well, unfortunately, that dinner didn't take place. In fact, they never really brought it up to him. They continued to work throughout the day, although his mind really wasn't on work at that point. He said, I got out there and I sat in the car before I went home and I just thought about what a missed opportunity. But then I stopped and I began to think how excited I was to meet someone like Billy Graham. How I was willing to clear my calendar of anything and everything while I was willing to make it work. And he said, it's such to be the life of faith. We have an opportunity to meet with the God of all creation, the one who set all things in motion. We could go to God in prayer at any time. He said much of that comes from the wrestling of celebrity in our lives, and I agree with him. Our culture loves celebrity. Our favorite actors and actresses are elevated. When we watch movies at home, we talk about them. We know probably too much about their lives on and off screen. We know so much about our favorite athletes, what they're doing on the field and off the field. We even elevate politicians to the level of celebrity in our culture. And we'll go out of the way to meet the people that we admire, that we want to know, and we'll clear our calendar to do so. When we choose to do that for God, we hallowed God. We hallowed God by remembering that he is unique and it is a gift to spend time in prayer with God. When we choose to clear our calendars just a bit to spend time in prayer, we remember that it's a sacred privilege. When we hallowed God's name, we find a gift in the presence of Almighty. We also say in the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the phrase, Our Father, who art in heaven. Now, I must admit that when we really look at what it means to hallowed God's name, it reminds me of how often we see God at a distance. He's unique and separate and sometimes out beyond us. But Jesus chooses to begin this prayer with the language, Our Father. And he does so because it is a reminder, I believe, that God is intimate. God is among us, that we are not alone. God is Father. That word, Father, is the Greek word, Abba. And that word is best translated into English, Daddy. It's an intimate word. A word that is warm and inviting and comforting. It is the word that when we say it, we imagine our little ones with their arms wide open running to us and saying, Daddy, hold me. Sitting in the chair, enjoying time together. God is Father, and God is with us. In our home, we love the stories of Corey Ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom, you may have heard her stories before. She grew up in the Netherlands with a wonderful family. Her father, Casper ten Boom, was a jeweler and a watchmaker. Her sister, Betsy, was a very close and dear friend and sister. 
They grew up in a wonderful, faith-filled home. In 1944, the Nazis occupied their country. Soon, they began separating people, the desirables from the undesirables, the Jews from the others. Corey and her family felt compelled by their faith to hide people so that they would not be caught and persecuted, to hide them until such time as they could smuggle them out of country via the underground. And they did that, and they were quite successful at it until, unfortunately, a neighbor found out what they were doing and turned them into the Gestapo. Their home was raided. Corey, her sister Betsy, and her father Casper were arrested, although they never found the hiding place in those who were in the home. They arrested them and took them to prison. They took them to prison, and it was terrible. They were treated inhumanely. And Corey's father, who was older, died soon after being put in prison. They did not know this until long after the war. Corey and Bessie survived their time in prison, but only to be shipped off to a concentration camp at Buchenwald. And there they experienced the worst of humanity. They experienced starvation, pain, and being overworked. They experienced death daily. Sadly, while they were in the concentration camp, Corey's sister Betsy died. But Corey survived. She survived in part because of the deep, deep faith that she had and the faith that she was committed to sharing with everybody in the camp while she was there. After the war, Corey went home to heal. She began helping other people heal. Like so many people around them, they began helping families reunite across Europe. She began to help the work of feeding the hungry and the like. But she felt compelled to share her faith, the faith that helped her get through this concentration camp. And so she began to preach and to teach in the Netherlands, around Europe, and truly around the world. She taught of God's love. She taught of loving both neighbor and enemy. She taught of forgiveness. Can't imagine how difficult that must have been after what she had seen. And yet, as she taught, people were amazed. They turned her life story into a book called The Hiding Place. And then after that, a movie of the same name. It is a powerful, powerful story. And as this book came out and rose to great popularity, people began to ask Corey, did you have this faith before you went to the concentration camp or did you develop it there? And so she sat down to write yet another book titled In My Father's House. She filled this book with stories of her childhood and of her youth and how she learned of who God was and of the love of God. There was wonderful little stories throughout the book, but the one that truly is the anchor to the book is the story of her father, Casper Ten Boom, and their kitchen table. She said, our family would gather around the kitchen table for breakfast, for dinner, and my father made sure that everybody had a chance to talk. And he said, somehow he always had the way of changing things to the stories of the faith, to remind us of who God was and who we were called to be. And she said, I remember him leading prayer at that table so often. But the thing that really 
developed her as a person of faith, she said, was four men who were friends of her father's. They would come together each week at the kitchen table in the Ten Boom household. They would sit together. They would have Bible study. And then they would pray together. They would pray for their families, for their businesses. They would pray for the mission that they all worked together at in the community, helping the underprivileged. They would pray. She said there was at her father's feet at that kitchen table with the men that she would later call uncle, that she truly learned of the faith. She learned how important the relationship to her father was. And then, of course, to her heavenly father. It's important for us as a people of faith to draw close to our heavenly father, to know that he is with us, that he can teach us as we pray. When we hallowed God's name, and when we remember that God is Father and close to us, we also come to understand that we are the children of God. Each and every one of us in this room are God's children. Each and every person beyond the walls of this church are God's children. Because God is sacred, we are sacred. Because God is Father, we are our family. It's important for us as a people of faith to step back from all that takes place in the world and anchor ourselves in that notion. To remember that we are family and we are sacred. Like you, we have been watching the news and seeing the violence across our country. Especially the school shootings have caught the attention of my house in so many ways. My wife, Amy, is a school teacher. She teaches fifth grade. I have three children in public school. And each and every time one of these events comes to the news, my heart pounds in my chest. We listen, like you did, for what happened, for what went wrong, We've had the debates in our house, like you've had in yours. We've seen the debates in the public square, online, and so many other places. We've heard the politicians speak. And all these conversations are important. And as a people of faith, we should be engaged in these conversations. The place of guns, the place of violence, how safe our schools are, we should engage but we should step back first and ask ourselves, what is going on? What is happening in our souls? I believe we fail to see that one another are sacred too often. We fail to see that we are creations of our Heavenly Father. And when we do, when we do so, it allows us to treat one another poorly, to disregard one another or discard one another. I was reminded this week of the story of Keenan Lowe. Keenan Lowe is a wonderful person, a person of faith who's truly making a difference in his work and in his life. You may remember Keenan Lowe's name because he was a wonderful football player. He played football for the Oregon Ducks. He was a starting wide receiver, and he made a big impact on the field. In fact, in 2015, it was part of their team that played in the national championship against Ohio State. Keenan 
was the first receiver in the game to catch a touchdown pass. It was a fantastic ending to a great college career. Keaton's life began, though, in pretty humble circumstances. His family did not have much. He had a single mother, two other siblings. His mom worked hard to keep food and roof and so many necessities for her kids. Keenan, though, well, he was very talented. And so he got to go to a wonderful high school to play football, and he was recruited early in life. While he was at his high school, he met some of his best friends for life. He had a wonderful life growing up, and at Oregon he learned that friendship was important, but hard work was important also. He had a coach named Chip Kelly who made him work hard. He told him, if you ever even want to see the field, you'll put harder work in. Keenan took what he had learned at home, what he had learned in practice, and he made a better person of himself. He started and had a wonderful career, but unfortunately just wasn't quite fast enough for the NFL. And so he knew at the end of college, he was probably done with football until he had a phone call. And that phone call was from his coach, Chip Kelly, who had moved on and was now the coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. And Chip Kelly said, I'd like for you to come out to Philadelphia, not to play, but to coach. And that's a big offer to someone right out of college. In the NFL, you have to work your way up. You have to work from cleaning in the weight room and the, in the locker room all the way up to be a coach. But Chip Kelly knew how special Keenan Lowe was, how he was an old soul, and how he worked hard, and he knew he'd be respected by the players in the league. And so off he went to coach. He coached in Philadelphia, and then eventually he moved to San Francisco where he coached the 49ers. It was right after the season ended, though, that he got a phone call, and he knew when he looked at the caller ID that it was not a good phone call. You see Taylor, his good friend, well, Taylor, was also a great football player. They had played all through high school together. Both went to college to play. Keenan was better, and he went to a Division I program at Oregon, while Taylor went on to play at a Division III school. But yet still, he was playing in college. Taylor got injured while he was playing, and he started to take painkillers. That spiraled out of control on him, and he began to be addicted to so many other things. When Keenan got the phone call, he knew it was about Taylor, and sadly, Taylor had died. It really rocked Keenan's world, and so he left San Francisco. He returned home to his mom, to his friends, and to mourn the loss of his close, close friend. There, he asked himself the question, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I really making a difference in the world? He decided to leave his very comfortable job in the NFL, and he took a job coaching football at Park Rose High School as their new head coach. At this point in time, Park Rose High School had one claim to fame. They had not won a game in two years. That's not a job that most coaches would jump at. But Keenan knew he could make a difference. He could make a difference on the field, and he could make a difference in the lives of those young men and the students at Park Rose High School. And so he took the job, and he was excited for where life was going to lead him. The first thing he learned was that 
Coaching in high school does not pay the same as coaching in the NFL. So the school offered him a second job during the day. He became the school's unarmed security officer. His job was to walk students most of the time from classroom to the office, from the office to classrooms, or escort more troubled students to where they needed to go. One day while he was sitting in the coach's office, he received a call over the walkie-talkie asking him to go retrieve Angel Ruiz from another building and bring him to the counseling office. Keenan got up and he walked. He walked across the campus, the smile on his face was normal. He went into the classroom where Angel was supposed to be and he asked the teacher where Angel was. The teacher had no idea until the screams began. The students in the very room that Keenan was standing in began to scream and to run. And when Keenan turned around, he found himself face to face with Angel and a shotgun. He said, I really didn't have time to think about it. All I did was lunge. I jumped and grabbed a hold of that gun and we began to wrestle. Now in truth, there wasn't much of a wrestling match between a great division one football player who had been working out with NFL athletes and this young, college, this young high school student. Soon he got the gun away from him and he grabbed a hold of Angel. With one hand, he held the gun out, and the other hand, he pushed the student away, still wrestling. They spilled out into the hallway, and the wrestling match continued. He kept trying to hold him there and hold the gun away until finally another teacher ran down the hallway, grabbed the gun, and ran it away. Keenan turned and looked at Angel, and he said, In just one brief moment, I caught a glimpse of his eyes, the tears and the pain, and I hugged him. He hugged him hard. He let go, I think in part, self-preservation. He didn't know what else to expect. But also, he knew right there before him was a broken person. They wrestled and they wrestled, eventually sliding to the floor and sitting together and Keenan never letting him out of his embrace. Angel said, I'm so sorry. I wasn't going to hurt anybody I only wanted to hurt myself. He eventually said, no one loves me, while Keenan was holding him. And so Keenan looked up at him and said, I do, and I've got you. I've got you today. They sit there, not in a comfy chair, not at a kitchen table, but on the dirty floor of a high school, and they held each other until the police arrived. Later in an interview, Keenan Lowe would say, I'm so glad I looked in his eyes. We have a God who is sacred, who is holy, and who deserves for us to keep him as such. We have a people who are the children of God, who are before us and all around us each and every day, who deserve for us to keep us sacred. Sometimes we perceive one another as enemies, people who think differently and act differently than we do. Sometimes we perceive one another as other, and we treat each other terribly. We think terrible thoughts. 
We push each other away and alienate too many people. Our prayer is for God's name to be hallowed. For our Father to be close to us. But when we do, we realize it makes us family. And our family should be as close. Today, we look at this first line of prayer knowing that we are God's family. And that's a sacred thing. It's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.